Last Christmas Eve, I preached my first Christmas message from this pulpit. And we looked at two verses, just two verses from Paul's letter to the Galatians. Well, today, I have the privilege of preaching my first Easter message from this pulpit. And once again, we will look at just two verses coming from the Gospel of John. So I invite you to take your Bible and let's turn to chapter 11 of John's glorious Gospel record. Chapter 11. You know, in school, not every seminarian is created equal. We're all better and worse at different things. We're very diverse. Um, some of the guys I went to school with just excelled at the biblical languages. They were so good. Other guys I went to school with were theology guys. Some of them were just really good at preaching. Others belong in a classroom somewhere and shouldn't go anywhere near a pulpit. I mean, we all have strengths and weaknesses, and that's a beautiful thing. It's a wonderful thing to see the diversity of gifts and talents that God has has brought together to build His church. That's a wonderful, beautiful thing. But I remember one time in preaching lab, this guy stood up and he just knocked it out of the park. I mean, he preached for 30 minutes and he preached to a room full of seminarians and a couple of uh, professors that were there ready to grade him. And he just blew it out of the water. It was so good. We were all ready to fall on our knees and repent by the time he was done. And I'll never forget, a friend of mine um, who played a lot of basketball leaned over to me and he said, man, that guy is so good. He's the goat. And I was like, the goat? You know you're old when the slang that you grew up saying is no longer around and you don't understand what today's slang is. And he's like, yeah, the goat. He's the greatest of all time. I was like, okay. So he's the goat. He's the greatest of all time. Well, this morning, here in chapter 11, this chapter contains what many consider to be the greatest miracle of all time that Jesus ever performed during his earthly ministry here at his first coming. Up until this point, John tells us that Jesus has already healed a man who had been crippled for 38 years. He had fed thousands of people with a child's lunch and provided sight for a man who had been born blind. He also turned water into wine, walked on water. Miraculous events. Signs that defy the laws of nature and man. But here in chapter 11, Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. And this is huge because it proved his divine power and even his lordship over death itself. Our chapter begins with Jesus' friends telling him that Lazarus is sick. And Lazarus himself was one of Jesus' really close friends, along with his sisters, Mary and Martha. They lived in a small town called Bethany. And this little Jerusalem suburb was Jesus' home base while visiting the city. He spent a lot of time there, and he knew these people well. In fact, there in chapter 11, you'll notice in verses 3, 5, and 36 that those verses state, restate, and emphasize the deep personal love that Jesus had for these individuals. He loved this family, and in many ways, they were his his extended family. So he spent a lot of time there, and he really loved Lazarus, Martha, and Mary. But what happens? Lazarus dies, right? Something we all do. At one time or another, Lazarus dies. And the people are disappointed. They're heartbroken. Because Jesus didn't show up as soon as he got the message. Why? Well, you can understand why the people are upset. Because according to Jewish tradition and rabbinical thought, a person was only mostly dead for the first three days after they passed. When a person died, that initiated a formal seven days of mourning called the Shabbat. And the first three days were days of weeping, and then the next four days were days of lamentation. So things really went up a notch by the time day four rolled around. Why? Well, the idea behind it all was that 
When a person dies, their spirit wanders around the sepulcher or the tomb for three days. And during that time, the rabbis believed that the spirit looked for an opportunity to re-enter into the body. So there was no embalming, very little preparation. Once a person expired, they were basically wrapped in cloths, thrown into a tomb or a cave somewhere almost immediately. So the spirit would have no trouble finding the body and enter, enter back into it if it could. Now, that sounds really strange to us, but that was a commonly held practice and belief going way back to some of the earliest of Jewish traditions. It has no grounding in Scripture, and it is not a part of our doctrinal statement here at First Baptist Church of Arlington. But it was a common mainstay of rabbinical thought and tradition in the ancient world. Friends and family would often visit the burial site, often during those first three days, and they didn't bring flowers. They would show up just to be close to the departed, wandering soul of their loved one as they would move around the sepulcher. It wasn't until day four, when the body would start to decompose naturally, that the spirit would then stop hovering and leave the body to itself. At that point, there was no longer any hope for revival or resuscitation. This person's spirit was officially gone. So three days of weeping turned into four more days of lamentation, where the living would beat their chest and scream and wail, often very loudly, very physically, for those four days in the face of the finality of death. When Jesus shows up, here in chapter 11, it's day four for Lazarus. And the people are grieving. They're beside themselves. They're making a ruckus. So with that little bit of background, let's look at the few verses leading up to our text, starting in verse 17. Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. But Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Notice that Martha is a believer. She is a woman of faith. She is an Old Testament saint. But she's a lot like many of us, isn't she? She trusts the Lord, but not fully enough to set aside her worldly care and rest in His provision. And that's an easy trap. It's an easy trap for any of us to fall into. We often trouble ourselves with questions like, How, Lord? Why did this happen? Or what if this had happened instead of that? And we miss out on the blessing that comes with a simple faith. Martha, though full of faith, she falls under this trap. Notice she limits the Lord's work to a specific time and place. She says, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. The implication is that Jesus could have done something then that he can't do now, and that he had to be there to do it. But Jesus had purposefully delayed his coming to Bethany because he knew the culture, he knew the traditions, and he knew that there would be no doubts at all that if he showed up at day four, that him raising Lazarus from the dead would in fact be an undeniable miracle. It would be miraculous. Up until now, he had already raised two others from the dead. He had raised Jairus' daughter, but she had just died. He had also raised the widow's son, but he had not yet been buried. With Lazarus, it was not that he was mostly dead. He was dead. He was dead dead. According to Jewish thought and rabbinical tradition and what everybody else around in the community believed and held on to at the time, Lazarus was done. He was dead, buried, and gone. The spirit had left the building. The body was starting to smell. And weeping had already turned into lamentation and grief. But Jesus had a plan. Look at what he says in verse 23. Jesus said to her, 
your brother will rise again. And once again, Martha, she shows great faith, but a troubled faith nonetheless. Verse 24, Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again, but in the resurrection on the last day. Now, let's not miss that. She believes in a resurrection on the last day, and that's awesome. That's huge. Sometimes I don't think we give Old Testament saints enough credit. I mean, they knew a lot, a lot more than we like to acknowledge sometimes, going way back. Even Job believed in a final physical resurrection of the body. He declared in Job 19, For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last He will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another. My heart faints within me. Job said that, and he didn't say it recently either. He said that a long time ago, hundreds of years before the Exodus, before the Ten Commandments, or even the writing of the first five books of the Bible. He said that somewhere around the time of Abraham. Long before the first word of Genesis was ever written, Job declared that he would see God in his flesh after his body had been destroyed. You can't go back much farther than that. Daniel also wrote about the final resurrection. Daniel 12.2 says, And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. The Old Testament saints knew a lot more than we like to give them credit, folks. And here Martha is proving that point once again. She believes in a final physical resurrection of the body, and that's good. But she doesn't take Jesus' words personally. She pushes them off into the future, as if they have nothing to do with her current situation here and now. Her brother is dead, and that's all she sees. She has Christ standing in front of her, and he's comforting her right now, and he's saying that he will rise again, and she's saying, yes, I know he will, but that's in the future, Lord. That's not today. That's not here and now. And that brings us to our text. Jesus' two-verse response to make resurrection truth very, very personal. Please follow along with me as I read John 11, verses 25 and 26. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? The title for this morning's message is Resurrection Life 101 because this response contains the elemental truths necessary for resurrection and eternal life. This sets the stage for Jesus' last and greatest sign before His own resurrection. This proves that Jesus is the master of life and death. It is both comforting to Martha and instructive for us as we consider the profundity of Jesus' answer regarding the resurrection. So let's break down what Jesus says here in these two verses. What comforting and personal truths does Jesus reveal about the resurrection to Martha? Well, first of all, we see the resurrection person. The resurrection person. Look at verse 11. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Notice that Jesus does not say, I have the resurrection and the life. He doesn't say, I will provide life through the resurrection, which is something you would probably expect him to say. No, he says, I am the resurrection and the life. He says, I am, I am. What a strange thing for Jesus to say. At first glance, it doesn't make much sense, does it? I mean, how could he possibly be anything 
other than what he actually is. I mean, how can anyone be the resurrection and the life? That sounds like, that's like saying I'm, I'm an action. I don't get it. What is he talking about there? Why would he say I am rather than I have or I can provide? Well, if this were the only time that Jesus had said something like this, we would scratch our heads. But this is just one of several emphatic I am statements recorded for us in the Gospel of John. There are seven of them. This one is number five in the series. Let's run through them really quickly here. The first is found in chapter 6, where Jesus reveals that he is the bread of life. He is the bread of life. John 6:35. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. So he is the bread of life. He is also the light of the world. The light of the world. John 8:12. Again, Jesus spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. I am statement number three. Jesus says, I am the door. Chapter 10, verse 7. So Jesus again said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. And again, there in verse 9. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. Number four says, I am the good shepherd. I am the good shepherd. They're in the same chapter. Just two verses later, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. And again, in verse 14, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. And as we've already seen, number five there in our text, John 11:25, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The six I am statement is found in John 14, where Jesus says, I am the way, the truth and the what? The life. John 14.6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And then finally, the last I am statement shows up in chapter 15 when Jesus tells his disciples, I am the vine. John 15, verse 1, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. And again in verse 5, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do Nothing. Seven I am statements in the Gospel of John. Seven times Jesus said, this is what I am. You want to know what I am? You want to know who I am? Well, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the door. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And I am the vine. All that to say, I am unique. I'm different. I'm special. I am the Christ. I am the Messiah. No one else could make these sorts of claims. No one else could say these things. The greatest, most humanitarian person you have ever met or heard of could never claim to be these things. To do so would be the greatest blasphemy, but not for Jesus. Only a man entirely without sin, who never deserved death, never fell to temptation, never disobeyed God's law, not even once, could ever claim to be the only lamb without spot or blemish, worthy enough to die in the place of sinful men and women like me so he could then defeat death through his own resurrection so that we might be raised to fullness of eternal life so long as we believe and live in him. There is only one Christ. There is only one Savior, one Messiah, and he alone can make these claims because they only apply to him. They don't apply to you. They don't apply to me. I am not the door. I am not the way, the truth, and the life. I am not the resurrection and the life. I'm not the vine. I'm not any of those things. There are many times I question whether I'm even a good shepherd. But there is only one truly good shepherd, one true vine, one true resurrection, one true life, 
And that is our Messiah, Jesus Christ. You see, when He says, I am the resurrection and the life, He is not saying that He can simply work the resurrection or that He can simply give life. He is saying that He is both. He doesn't deny the future resurrection, but He does comfort Martha by saying that the resurrection is here right now and the resurrection is present with you. I am that resurrection power and life is found in me alone. That's what He's saying to her. Well, what does this mean for us? Well, it means that eternal life and victory over death are not merely gifts that we ask God for, but they are part of the package that comes with living our lives in Christ. If you have Christ, you have the resurrection. If you have Christ, you have eternal life. Because Christ is everything. He is everything He promises and more. He is our bread. He is our light. He is our door. He is our shepherd, our resurrection, our way, our truth, our life, and our vine. He is our Savior. There is no one else who even comes close to being like Him. That is why Paul is able to write in Colossians 1, starting in verse 15, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, invisible and visible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through Him and for Him. For He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. And He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything He might be preeminent. For in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through Him to reconcile to Himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of His cross. All things, all things, all things by Him, through Him, and for Him. He is preeminent in everything. And in Him you will find the fullness of God Himself because He is the resurrection and the life. These things not only come from Him, these things are found in Him because this is who He is. He is the resurrection person. That's number one. Number two, He provides the resurrection promise. The resurrection promise. Jesus goes on to say, Whoever believes in Me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in Me shall never die. That sounds a lot like the most popular verse in the Bible, doesn't it? Anyone want to guess what that might possibly be? John 3.16, that's right. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. The Holy Spirit declares through John, whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have eternal life. And Jesus says, whoever believes in Me Though he die, yet shall he live. This is the promise of eternal life. And this is one of the greatest assurances that we have. But notice that this promise is not for everyone. He doesn't say everyone will not perish but have eternal life. He doesn't say everyone will die yet live. No, he says whoever, whoever believes in me. I've said this before. God is not a universalist. In the end, not everyone is going to be saved. Only those who believe that Jesus is who He says He is will be saved. It is only when we put our trust solely in Him, our resurrection and our life, and when we confess our sins and our need for a Savior, and we repent of those sins and deny ourselves in order to pick up our crosses every day and follow Him. It is only then, all because He has given us new life in Christ by causing us to be born again, then and only then 
Can we join in what the Apostle so joyously declares in 1 Peter 1? Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Friends, the resurrection promise is here. It's here and it's now. And it's for whoever will believe. I hope that includes you today. Notice that Jesus is, he does not promise to deliver us from physical death altogether. He says, though he die, yet shall he live. The resurrection promises not to avoid the first death, but to escape the second one. Now, to better understand this truth, let's flip back to John chapter 3. John chapter 3, starting in verse 1. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Jesus blows past the compliments and the signs, and he cuts straight to the point. Now, this is important. He says that you must be born again. You must be born again. You must be born from above in order to see God's kingdom. Now, listen, this is true for everyone in this room, and I hope you remember this. You will either be born once and die twice, or you will be born twice and die once. That's true for everyone in this room, and I hope you get that. You will either be born once and die twice, or you will be born twice and die once. If your physical birth is the only birth that you know, and you are not born again spiritually, then you will die twice. You will die both physically and spiritually. Because there is a second death, a spiritual death, waiting for those who reject the gospel of Jesus Christ. 2 Thessalonians 1.9 describes this second death as the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might. Similarly, Revelation 21.8 says, But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. I hope and pray that no one here this morning will ever die twice. I pray that every single one of you would be born again. Because if you are born twice, you will only die once. Or as Jesus says in our text, though he die, yet shall he live. He also adds, and everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Shall never die. What a wonderful promise. Amen? It's a wonderful promise because every single one of us deserves death. Every single one of us does. The wages of sin or the payout of sin is death. And we have all sinned. Every last one of us. We've all earned for ourselves a fat paycheck of death. Who here has lived a sinless life? Anyone? Any takers? It's probably easier for you to think back to the time when you last sinned as opposed to trying to think back to the time when you didn't. Because we're all sinners. And we all deserve death. But Jesus says, everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Shall never die. How is that possible? 
Well, there's a story that comes from the Kahave Medical Center in Kenya where a little girl named Monica fell into a pit and broke her leg. An older woman named Mama Nahari happened to walk by and decided to climb into the pit and help the poor girl out. While climbing out of the pit, a deadly black mamba snake bit them both. Monica was taken to the medical center and received treatment for her leg, but Mama Nahari, on the other hand, traveled home, went to bed, and never woke up. The next day, a discerning missionary nurse relayed the news of Mama's death to the eight-year-old girl. She told her that the snake had bitten both of them, but all the snake's poison had been expended on Mama and that none of it had been given to her. She then went on to explain how Jesus had taken all of the poison of Monica's sin so she could have new life in Him. And that little girl accepted Christ that day. Friends, that is what Jesus has done for us. Only it was no accident. Jesus said, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down. He suffered unimaginable agony on the cross of an unwavering obedience to the Father. And out of love for you, He drank a cup of infinite anguish so that you and I could never endure the, the suffering and the pain and all of the consequences for our own sin. He did all of that. And it pleased the Father to crush Him to pour out the full measure of divine justice and wrath for our sins upon Him. He chose to do this so you and I could have our sins paid for. And Jesus' perfectly obedient life can be attributed to your account. If you are here this morning and you are still holding on to the poison of your own sin, do not let your head hit the pillow tonight before crying out to God for forgiveness. I beg you, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the bread of life. He is the light of the world. He is the door the good shepherd, the resurrection, the way, the truth, and life, and the true vine. Believe on this Jesus, this Christ, this Messiah, this Savior, who raises the dead and conquers the grave. Everyone in this room needs a Savior. Every single one of us do. And there's only one. You can't go to the store and choose between many because there is only one Savior. There is only one Son of God who has made recompense for your sin. There is only one Savior powerful enough to claim, I am the resurrection and the life. Jesus has taken all of our poison so that we might live. Or, perhaps you are here this morning and you're more like a Martha. Your theology is sound and you are a true believer, but you're a troubled one. I would encourage you to come back to the person who is your life. Recognize the man standing in front of you. Recognize your Savior. Believe in Him fully, simply, completely. Spend time with your Savior in His Word and in prayer. Grow to love Him more with a simple faith and a hungry heart for more of Him. He is, after all, the resurrection person of the resurrection promise. Well, finally, as we turn back to our text, we see the resurrection proposal. The resurrection proposal. Pulling it all together, he asked, do you believe this? Do you really believe? That's the million-dollar question. That's the question every single one of us need to reconcile this morning. We need to all wrestle with that question. Do I believe this? A couple observations concerning Jesus' question. First of all, notice that Jesus addresses faith, not feeling. He addresses faith, not feeling. He doesn't say, does that help? Or do you feel better now? Or are these thoughts comforting to you? Jesus certainly cared about how she felt. I don't want to make light of that. But that wasn't nearly as important as what she believed. That's what Jesus was concerned about. What do you believe, Martha? Feelings are deceptive. Feelings come and go. People who live by that Disney mantra, just follow your heart, often find themselves in all sorts of trouble because the heart is deceitfully wicked. 
And the strong feeling that governs your actions today might not be there tomorrow. Feelings continually fade and shift, but faith, faith is an anchor fastened in concrete. Faith is solid. Faith is real because it does not come from within. It comes from above. We should not rely on our hearts to tell us where to go, but rather tell our hearts where to go as we live a life of faith. Well, every once in a while, I like to devotionally pray through this collection right here, the Valley of Vision. I hope uh, I hope many of you are familiar with it. If you're not familiar with this book, it's a collection of Puritan prayers and devotionals. And if you don't have it, shame on you. Every Christian should have this book. I'm just going to say that right right here and now. That's not authoritative. That doesn't come from God's Word, but it comes from me as a strong recommendation. You should have this book. Collection of Puritan Prayers and Devotions, Valley of Vision. It is so good. Both the Valley of Vision and Alistair Begg's modern version of... Uh, Charles Spurgeon's Morning and Evening are probably two of my most favorite books apart from the Bible. They are so close to my heart, and they are so good. Well, of all things this week, I happen to fall across a particular Puritan prayer on faith. And I'd like to share it with you because it clearly displays how a mature believer should pray when feelings and faith collide. Listen to this prayer, and please forgive the King's English. My God, I bless Thee that Thou hast given me the eye of faith to see Thee as Father, to know Thee as a covenant God, to experience thy love planted in me. For faith is the grace of union for which I spell out my entitlement to thee. Faith casts my anchor upward where I trust in thee and engage thee to be my Lord. Be pleased, listen to this, to live and move within me, breathing in my prayers, inhabiting my praises, speaking in my words, moving in my actions, living in my life, causing me to grow in grace. Thy bounteous goodness has helped me believe but my faith is weak and wavering, its light dim, its steps tottering, its increase slow, its backslidings frequent. It should scale the heavens, but lies groveling in the dust. Lord, fan this divine spark into glowing flame. When faith sleeps, my heart becomes an unclean thing, the fount of every loathsome desire, the cage of unclean lust all fluttering to escape, the noxious tree of deadly fruit, the open wayside of earthly tears. Lord, awake faith to put forth its strength until all heaven fills my soul and all impurity is cast out. That's good, isn't it? That's so good. Feelings come and go, but saving faith gives us ground to stand on. Another observation about this question is notice that Jesus is being specific. He doesn't ask Martha if she believes generally. He says, Martha, do you believe this? Do you believe these truths that I just shared? And look at her answer there in verse 27. She said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. Good answer, Martha. Good answer. And I hope and pray that that would be our answer this morning as well. That we would shout, Yes, Lord, I believe. I believe. I hope it would be affirmative. I hope we would not stand before the Lord face to face and say, Eh, I don't know. Maybe. I mean, we'll just wait and see what you do. No, I believe. I believe. I'd like to share with you now a confession by James Montgomery Boyce. I think ties in with this so well. I started to write up my own little thing like this, and then I came across his, and I was like, you know, I'm a little under the weather this week. I'm just going to read you his. Because, uh, because his is so good. So good. He said, I believe in one great God who has made this earth and has placed me upon it. I believe that I am sinful. I believe that this same God in love and wisdom 
sent the Lord Jesus Christ to die for me that I might be saved. I believe that Jesus existed with God and as God from the beginning, that He became man, that His death was a substitutionary death for me by which my sin has been removed as far as the east is from the west and on the basis of which it will be remembered against me no more. I believe that I believe in Christ's historical, literal, and bodily resurrection by which God has demonstrated that Christ's sacrifice on the cross is acceptable to Him as an all-sufficient atonement for the sins of His people and in which He has also given a foretaste of the coming resurrection of all who believe on Him. I believe in the person and power of the Holy Spirit. I believe that He opens blind eyes to see Christ and moves rebellious wills to embrace Him to their salvation. I believe that He illuminates the written Word of God so that those who are saved can understand it and obey it. I believe in the fellowship of the saints. I believe in the church. I believe in God's providence by which nothing enters the life of a Christian that is not the product of either God's direct or permissive will. I believe that God chastises His children. I believe that He is determined to perfect the character of Jesus Christ in all who are united with Christ by faith. I believe that Jesus will one day return from heaven, even as He, is, even as he was seen to go into heaven bodily and in time. I believe that in that day there will be a final resurrection of believers to the life of heaven and of unbelievers to judgment. In hell there will be suffering. In heaven there will be a life of blessing prepared in advance by God for those whom He has chosen in Christ before the foundations of the world. Yes, Lord, I believe. Friends, do you believe this? Do you believe this book? Do you believe these truths? Do you believe that Christ is who He says He is? Do you believe that Jesus is the Christ? He is the Messiah. He is the Savior. Again, if you are not the proud owner of saving faith, I would say come to Jesus. Come to the resurrection and the life. Jesus loves to save sinners. He is the friend of sinners. He came to seek and save that which is lost. He came not for the righteous, but for the unrighteous. He came not for the, not for the well, but for the sick. And if you would but confess your condition this morning and cry out to God, help me. I am a great sinner in need of a great Savior. Then I promise you, He is faithful and just to forgive you of your sin and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. If you will but call upon Him, He will give you the free gift of His righteousness. So that when God the Father looks at the cross, He will see all of your sin, all of your guilt, all of your iniquity placed upon the head of His precious Son. And when He turns and He looks at you, all He will see is the perfect obedience of Christ and a righteousness that is worthy of eternal life with Him. If you believe in your heart that this is true, that God raised Christ Jesus from the dead, and confess with your mouth that this same Jesus is Lord, worthy of praise, glory, and honor, then you will be saved, and your name will be added to the roster of the redeemed. You will be born again, born from above, and not have to face death a second time. And though you may die, yet shall you live. So if this saving faith is not yours this morning, if you don't own it, if you are uncertain and unsure about this faith, don't drag your feet. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Believe in your heart. Confess with your mouth. Repent of your sin and turn away from yourself. And come to the Savior today. Do it today. Well, there are so many places we could go with this. So many directions for us to conclude our time together. But I think the best place for us to turn is Luke 24. Luke 24, starting in verse 1. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, so just a few pages to the left. 
starting in verse 1. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared, and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, and this is so incredible, why do you seek the living among the dead? What a question. What a statement. Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. Christ has risen indeed. Our Savior is alive. Think about that. He's not dead. He did die, but He's alive. Likewise, whosoever believes in Him will not die forever. Though He die, yet shall He live. Our Savior is alive, and so is our hope. He is the resurrection. He is the life. Whoever believes in Him, though He die, yet shall He live. And whoever lives and believes in Him shall never never die. Do you believe this? Let's pray. Your Heavenly Father, Lord, where do we even begin to thank You and to offer our praise for what You have done for us in Your Son, Jesus Christ? Lord, many of us here, we have, we have children. And even if we don't have children, we were all children at one time. And Lord, I can't even imagine what it must have been like for You to have poured out the full measure of Your wrath on Your only Son. For Him to be so obedient and to be so perfect as to have willingly laid down His life so that we could be saved. Lord, these are crushing truths. These are overwhelming truths. And we are so, so thankful for them. Thank You for the plan of salvation. Thank You for sending Your Son to die in our place. And thank You for raising Him from the dead. Our Savior lives And so does our hope. Lord, I pray that not just this Sunday, today we celebrate that. Today we we make it a special day and that we honor the fact that Christ has risen from the dead. But Lord, I pray that that truth would never leave our hearts. I pray that that truth would affect us every day as we consider the, the magnitude and the awesomeness of what You have done for us and the fact that our Savior lives. Lord, we love You. We thank You. We give You glory. We give You honor. And You are so, so worthy. And and we are just, again, overwhelmed by Your goodness, by Your grace, by Your mercy, and by Your love. Lord, I pray that as we continue throughout this day and throughout this week, just that these truths about who You are as the resurrection person and the promise that You have made to us, Lord, that that even though we die, we shall live forever with You as You are alive today. I pray that we would carry these things with us and that we would be changed by them for Your glory and in Your name. Amen.